Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm now taking up Mark chapter 2, the first two incidents in that chapter, where Jesus heals a paralytic let down through a roof at the house in Capernaum. And the second incident, a story, is the calling of Matthew, the son of Levi. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, the tax collector, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to rely heavily on parallel the parallel versions in Matthew 9 and Luke 5, because they have more details than Mark does. So let's start reading Mark 1, which says, When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was, it was reported that he was at home. Now this house at Capernaum, of course, is probably, beyond a doubt really, Simon Peter and Andrew's house, where Simon Peter lived with his mother-in-law, and this was Jesus' base of operations. Now Matthew tells us that before they got to the house, it says, So he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. Now this, according to John Gill, refers to when he came back from taking care of the Gadarene demoniacs. And I don't know when it is. The The harmony of the Gospels is, is a very difficult problem. I am just putting this in, this, in what A.T. Robertson calls the first Galilee tour with the four disciples. And so we'll put it put it there somewhere in this first Galilean ministry tour. He comes to Capernaum. Where he came from, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. They, he was somewhere on the north shore of Galilee, and he came over on a boat, probably on the north shore, or maybe from Gadara, maybe, which is on the eastern shore. And he came into Capernaum. Mark gives us the details that it was definitely at Capernaum, at, and it, probably it was at Peter's house. So we read now in verse Mark chapter 2, verse 2. So many people gathered together, so many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the message to them. Now this is the same enthusiasm at the house, which is at Capernaum, as when he had left Capernaum, if you recall, in the last chapter of Mark. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door. It was a very busy place, that little house at Capernaum. Now, they gathered together in the doorway. That's probably a courtyard right in front of the doorway, and Jesus was probably in the lower room of the house with the door open, and the people flocked to him. Now, who was in this crowd? Well, Luke tells us in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of of the law sitting by, who would come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. They were flocking there. They wanted to see who this Messiah was. After all, it's their their job to judge who's a false Messiah and a true Messiah. Nothing wrong with that, if they, except their judgment was terrible. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Where Jesus went, the power of God went to heal. Moving on to Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Then they came to him, to Jesus, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. means the crowd came to him carrying a a paralytic carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was, and when they had broken through, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was laying. Lying. Bad grammar, excuse me, lying. Now these four men couldn't get through the crowd at the doorway, so they walked up the stairs on the outside of the house, went to the roof. This is very common in, in the architecture of houses back then. And then they cut a hole in the roof. Now the typical Palestinian house, as I said, had a flat roof, the construction of which was made out of a thick layer of clay, was packed with a stone roller, 
and the roof was supported by branches which, which were laid across wooden beams. So to get through that roof, they had to cut through the clay, the stones, the branches, and the wooden beams holding all that up at the very top. A lot of trouble. It shows that they really believed that Jesus could heal them. Now, I, the application here is obvious. Sometimes it's hard to get to Jesus, but you better do everything you can to get to him, to hear his voice, to, to let him lay his hands on you, metaphorically speaking, when you need something that's beyond human possibility, like getting healed of paralysis. you got to get to Jesus, and this is an example of how people showed their faith in Jesus. They showed it actively. They didn't just mouth faith formulas. They did something to show that in their heart, they actually believe that Jesus could heal them. Now, let me say this. You can't just manufacture that in your heart. This is what the hyperfaith heretics often do. They say, just say the right formulas over and over again, and that faith will be engendered in your heart. And God and Jesus, like a genie, will come to respond to your faith because it's your faith that's healing you. It's not Jesus so much. It's your faith that's healing you. No. These people had an object of their faith. The object was Jesus. And they knew it, and all they knew, and they knew that all they had to do was get that man down in front of Jesus, and he would be healed. And they were exactly right. Now, I just gave you a description of how it might have been done that the hole was cut. Let me give you a quote from Jameson Fawcett Brown to show that we're not exactly sure. Several explanations have been given of the way in which this was done, but unless we knew the precise plan of the house and the part of it from which Jesus taught, which may have been a quadrangle or open court within the buildings of which Peter's house was one, or a gallery covered by a veranda, it is impossible to determine precisely how the thing was done. But nonetheless, it was done. Moving on to Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, as much as the man was in physical need, and he was, Jesus knew he had a bigger problem, and that was the sin problem. Jesus took care of the bigger problem first, and then he took care of the smaller problem. And you say, well, man, being paralyzed, that's a pretty big problem. Yes, it is. But sin problem is even worse. This is something that all of us have, of course, and that's what Jesus came to do. Now, in this story, Jesus is going to he heal a physical ailment, a physical disease, in order to prove that he can heal spiritual diseases. His point is not to say that physical heat, physical diseases have sin as their origin. Remember, that's taught against in other passages. Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees who said, who sinned that this man might become born blind, his, him or his parents? Because the Pharisees had this idea that if you have sin, if you have sickness, it's caused by a particular sin. And Jesus clearly says that is not true. He said, no, it was neither his parents nor him. It was for the glory of God. Sickness is in the world because of Adam and Eve's sin in general, but you cannot tie it down to particular sin. There's a lot of people that are innocently sick, not because of anything they did. It's just they live in a fallen world. So Jesus is not trying to say that. What he's trying to do is to, to show the people, look, I have got power to heal a paralyzed man, which is an incredible miracle. And somebody that has the power to heal a paralyzed man also has the power to forgive sins. That's all he was trying to do. Now, notice Jesus said, seeing their face, or in Luke it says, when he saw their faith. And in Matthew 9, it says, seeing their faith. He saw their faith. He saw what they had done. Again, faith is an outward expression of something which is in the heart. It is not something you merely have in your heart by ginning it up, as I said, with a faith formula. 
If you believe something, you're going to act on it. It's one thing that the old, the old uh, example of sitting in a chair of a tightrope walker who's walking across a tightrope strung across Niagara Falls. It's one thing to say, yeah, I believe I could sit in that chair and go across the, the falls, and it's another thing to actually get in the chair and sit. So the next time you think you have faith, ask yourself, am I willing to really believe what Jesus said and act on it? Do something so that Jesus can see the faith. And again, you don't do something to try to make Jesus do something. That's just manipulating him like a genie. And again, that's a problem with the hyper-faith message. You don't go out and do something stupid, say, see there, I've got faith. No, you do what is first put in your heart. And then what's put in your heart is then expressed outwardly in your actions. So Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And of course, he was responding to their faith. That's why it says seeing their faith. He didn't say, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now notice it's all of their faith, not just the sick man. He was willing to be let down through the roof, but it was the four men who let him down through the roof because he says seeing their faith, not just the sick man's faith, but their faith, all five of them. Jesus responded to their faith. He said, oh, you want to, you've gone to all that trouble to get this paralyzed man down in front of me i know that you believe in me and then he forgave them for their sins and notice they didn't even didn't even ask for forgiveness of their sins but he just forgave them outright why because they believed in jesus they believed in jesus and you know i mentioned in a previous audio that believing is always accompanied with repentance and uh it should be but here there's no repentance it's just your sins are forgiven you. You don't see that. So, you know, you got to be careful. you got to look at all the Scripture together, and, yeah, you should repent and believe. But like I say, the thief on the cross didn't have time to repent, but he believed in Jesus. So I know there's a big theological controversy over that, I just, but I just mentioned this to you. Now, Mark says that Jesus called the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Luke 5.20 says, Friends, friend, your sins are forgiven. And Luke 5.20, and I don't know what translation this is, unfortunately. I think it's the NASB, says, man, your sins are forgiven you. But whatever it is, it's a, friend, a kind, friendly appellation, according to John Gill, like friend. He considered him an adopted son of God. And this, I think, is the better translation to say friend rather than man. Let me go back to the point I made earlier, the fact that his, the man's sins were forgiven without confession of repentance. I suppose that the act of tearing up the roof and being let down through the roof, that was his that was his repentance. He was turning away from sin and going to Jesus. So repentance means turning away from sin, but turning away from sin also can be looked at as going towards Jesus, going to Jesus for help in your time of need. Moving on to Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. But some of the scribes who were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the sin, the scribes were exactly right. Only God can forgive sins, but they were wrong in not recognizing that Jesus was God. He had the right to forgive sins. Now, when it says scribes, scribes were the teachers of the law. Most of the teachers of the law were of the theological school of the Pharisees. Some scribes were Pharisees, but not all scribes were Pharisees. And some Pharisees were scribes, but not all Pharisees were scribes. Scribes were teachers. They were tutors, actually, of some people, and so, and they were also uh, private officials who actually recorded documents and such, copied the law, maybe did notariza notarization ta task and things like that, wrote letters. So it's easy to get that mixed up when you read this, but basically they were teachers of the law, and they were the ones that were, of course, worried about blasphemy and keeping the law and so forth, and they immediately jumped to the conclusion that Jesus is blaspheming. Notice that they didn't 
mention the fact that he just healed a man that was paralyzed and couldn't walk. Oh, that didn't affect them too much. These people were idiots, sin-hardened fools. Now, in, Jesus, in Jewish theology, not even the Messiah could forgive sins. So when you say that you're forgiving sins, what you are saying is, I am God. And that's why they said he's blaspheming. Now, notice they said it amongst themselves. They were thinking like this within themselves because they were scared to say anything publicly because the man had just been healed of paralysis. That would make them very, very unpopular. Now, moving on to Mark chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, this is the scribes, the Pharisees that were there, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? Now, notice that in his spirit, he knew what the Pharisees were thinking. Now, there are some options as to how he did this. It could have just been he humanly determined what they were thinking just by looking at their faces, maybe. Or it could be he did it because he was divine and knows a lot of things because he's divine, knows everything because he's divine. Or it could be that he was a man operating as a man, but he had it specially revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Now, John Gill says it was because he was divine, because that's the way, whenever these questions come up, John Gill always says it's because he's divine. Well, there's no way to really know when you get these three options. When you watch Jesus performing his ministry on this earth, you can't really tell how he's doing things. Now, it comes up theologically because the hyper-faith people, they always say, oh, no, Jesus operated as a human with the Holy Spirit, and since we're human, we can operate with the Holy Spirit, and we can do the same things Jesus does because you're little gods, and you're God just like Jesus was. See, what they do is they elevate man to the, to the status of Jesus, the Son of God, or they de-elevate the Son of God down to the level of sinful man, and I think that's why I hate that theology so bad. That's nonsense. But at any rate, Jesus, and sometimes you can clearly find examples in the scriptures, in the Gospels, where the only way he knew something is it had to be divine, or the Holy Spirit miraculously revealing something to him. And sometimes he acted just as a human being, and he, and he used human perception to figure things out. There's no point in arguing over that. He was divine, and he was human, and, and you can't really distinguish out his activities a lot of times, or how, how he did his activities a lot of times. So anyway, Jesus here is making his main point. I healed the man so I could prove that I have authority to forgive sins, that I am God. Again, this is a pretty bodacious statement. I am God. I can forgive sins. He was immediately accused of blasphemy. This shows why these dumb liberal Protestants who go around and say, Oh, Jesus was such a wonderful ethical teacher. No, he wasn't. He was crazy if he wasn't God. Liberal Protestants who say Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a good ethical teacher. No, he wasn't. He was nutso. He deserved, he, if that were true, he deserved to be in an insane asylum. He was claiming to be God when he said he could forgive sins. All right, let's move on to Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Now, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here. This is a messianic title, a quite appropriate place to use that title because... He's claiming to be God. How do we know that Son of Man means Messiah? How do, how do we know that the Son of Man is a Messianic term? Well, because it was the most common title for himself. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. It's never used by anyone else, only Jesus. And he used it as a Messianic title because he got it from Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, 
which says this, I continued watching in the night visions, this is Daniel speaking, and I saw one like a son of man. Holman Christian Study Bible capitalizes that one because it's talking about Jesus. And I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory in a kingdom. So this is when Jesus gets his kingdom. And that's what a Messiah is, is someone who has the kingdom. So that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. That's us Gentiles. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's what Jesus was talking about here when he was calling himself the Son of Man and healing paralytics and forgiving sins. Now, here's a synopsis of information that I called from the Internet to give you some a feeling about this term, Son of Man. Quote, Many have said that Jesus used this phrase to emphasize his humanity. The Jewish idiom used son of to show a close and intimate connection with. Therefore, a son of man is someone who is human, who has humanity. There's nothing wrong with this idea as long as one does not use it to detract from Jesus' divinity. After all, Jesus uses the phrase of himself when he forgave sins in Mark 2.10. That's where we are now. So that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. However, ironically, the phrase son of man is actually used by Jesus to emphasize his divinity. He got the phrase from Daniel 7.13-14, as I just mentioned. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That's from Daniel. This reference is the only relevant use of the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament. From the context, it is obvious that Daniel is using the term of someone divine. The Son of Man was presented before God the Father of the Ancient of Days and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. But we know even more than we can get from the context of Daniel 7. Daniel was a prisoner of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exile. 586 B.C. In Old Babylonian, the phrase son of man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, he was working for the Babylonians, he was familiar with that phrase, son of man, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that the one like a son of man is rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. Son of man is essentially the same as son of God in this context. In the New Testament, no one called Jesus the Son of Man, with the exception of Stephen as he was being stoned in Acts 7. Jesus used it of himself all the time. He is recorded as doing this about 90 times earlier. I said 81 times according to NIV Study Bible. But let's just say 80 to 90 times. So every time he used it, he was essentially saying, I am God, and I will inherit a kingdom and have dominion forever and ever, and I will establish that kingdom by coming on the clouds in judgment upon my enemies. It is debated whether the Jews in Jesus' day actually were using the phrase Son of Man as a messianic term. Regardless of how the Jews used the phrase, however, Jesus at least initiated the use of the phrases referring to the divine Messiah if he didn't appropriate a phrase already in use. So, Jesus forgave sins and he calls himself the Son of Man, which means he's the Messiah. He told the paralytic to get up and go home so everyone could see and thus prove the miracle. Now, Jesus really needed to heal the paralytic after he made the after he made the claim, I'm the son of man, I've got the authority to heal sins, he really, really set himself up in a situation because if he hadn't healed that paralytic after he just called himself the son of man, the Messiah, and I have the ability to forgive sins, if he hadn't healed that paralytic, then people would say, well, then you don't have the ability to forgive sins, therefore you are a blasphemer and you're going to get stoned to death. Now, Mark chapter 2, verse 12 says this, immediately he got up, that's the formerly paralyzed man, picked up the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The parallel passage in Luke chapter 5, verse 26 says, We have seen incredible things today. 
Both of the passages say they were all astounded and gave glory to God. They saw a healing and gave glory to God. Now, two points I want to make here before we leave. First of all, faith. That word has been abused by the Copenhagenites, the word faith people. But people who are opposed to them, cessationist types, are in danger here. They rightly condemn fake healings, but they close their eyes and their minds, their narrow minds, they close their minds to the evidence of genuine healings that take place. They don't go around glorifying God when somebody gets healed. And to me, that's offensive. Are you listening, Todd Friel? Are you listening, Phil Johnson? Are you listening, John MacArthur? Are you listening, Justin Peters? Go around and condemn the fake Benny Hens and the Kenneth Copelands and denounce them, just as I've done many times. But don't deny the fact that God heals people miraculously. And when it happens, you need to give glory to God. This man did that. And so did the people who saw it. They gave glory to God because they'd never seen anything like that before. And I can tell you, I did the same thing when I saw a miracle when, my, when I was about to lose my faith and I saw my legs grow out, my leg, excuse me, my left leg grow out in the thin air and I saw a miracle. I gave glory to God. I hadn't stopped since. Would that cessationists would quit acting like deists and non-believers. And I'm tempted to say Pharisees. Let me also make a point about the difference between faith and presumption. There's two ways you can, there's three ways you can pray. The first way is you cannot have faith in your heart, and then you go out and do something in order to prove that you got faith in your heart when you don't have it. And you go out and do something in order to create the faith in your heart by doing something foolishly externally. For example, oh, I'm going to throw my glasses away, and God's going to see that, and he's going to honor my faith and make my eyes see again. That's what, that's what the old charismatics trying to guard against the excesses of the faith message. They used to say that's, that was presumption, not faith, and that's really true. You can't jerk God around like a genie by going out and doing stuff and asking him to move. The other way of praying for something is to say, yeah, I believe, I believe, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Well, you don't really believe if you can't tell anybody about it. That's like saying, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to tell anybody he's the Son of God risen from the dead, sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Yeah, but I'm not going to tell anybody that. Well, that's that's an, another erroneous way. The, the correct way is to have that faith in your heart to start with, and then to have that faith so sure and so secure that you're going to act on it and do what Jesus tells you to do. And that's what this man did. He showed that he believed in Jesus by being let down. And when Jesus said, get up and walk, he acted on Jesus' command and he got up and walked. He didn't walk before Jesus told him to walk. He walked when? After Jesus told him to walk. There's a lot of applications there that we can get out of that passage. Now we will move to the second story in this audio, the calling of Matthew to be a disciple. Mark chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 says this, Then Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he taught them. That's just an incidental detail showing that there were lots of people coming to Jesus. Verse 14, Then moving on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office and he said to him, Follow me. So he got up and followed him. This is Levi, the son of Alphaeus, who's also known as Matthew. The way we know that is because Matthew called himself Matthew. This is the same Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. If we, read, if we read Matthew 9, verse 9, we read this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Well, why did, why did Mark and Luke not mention his name? Probably because the tax collectors stunk so badly in Jewish society, they didn't want to embarrass Matthew by saying he was a former tax collector. That's like saying Susie, who is now a dedicated follower of Christ, she used to be a stripper. 
or she used to be a prostitute, or she used to be a porn star. There are strippers and porn stars that are getting saved, by the way. You read about them in the press, and thank God for it, but you really don't want to emphasize that when 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 you're when you that's like saying somebody was a former democrat or something you know you don't want to say something like that so uh matthew was probably the only one who out of but well because he was brave enough to say look yeah i'm my name's matthew i used to be a tax collector but now i'm following jesus mark calls matthew levi the son of alphaeus well who is this son of alphaeus well we see that there was a mary the wife of alphaeus who stood at the cross and who brought spices to Jesus to anoint his body for burial with a group of women. And then we also know that Alphaeus is the same as Clophus, who was on the road to Damascus. And we also know that there was a James, the son of Alphaeus, known as James the Younger. Well, all these names are extraordinarily confusing. If this is the same Alphaeus, which we don't know, then that means that Matthew is related to the people that were closely involved with the crucifixion and resurrection. Mary, the wife of Alphaeus. Matthew, by the, by the way, in another passage in Matthew 10:3, he mentions himself. He says, Matthew, the tax collector, and along with another disciple, James, the son of Alphaeus, who's known as James the Younger, who was one of the disciples of Christ. So he might have been intimately tied up with the disciples. And it's interesting to me how much nepotism there was. Jesus called a lot of people who related to one another, and that didn't bother him at all. So where was he a tax how was he a tax collector up there in Capernaum? Well, there was a road that went from Damascus through Capernaum in northeast of Syria of Israel in Syria, and then went down to the north of the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, kept going to the Mediterranean Sea, then turned south and went to Egypt. That was a main road, a lot of international traffic on there. There could have been customs and tolls to be taken there, or it could be just a ferry toll booth to take tolls from ferries that are crossing the Sea of Galilee. But at any rate, he was a tax collector. And what's so bad about being a tax collector? Well, a tax collector was so low and so socially unacceptable that they were despised as traitors and extortioners because they were working for the Roman government, probably. Well, they were, not probably. They were working for the Roman government. And the Roman government says, you give us our cut, then whatever else you get over what's owed to us is taxes. And I'm sure their taxes were not low, usually. After that, after I cut, you can get what you want. Well, that's basically make some robbers. Think IRS. Whenever you see tax collectors, think IRS. Do you get a warm and fuzzy feeling when you think about an IRS agent? I used to work with an IRS agent, a former IRS agent, and she said she carried a gun to work with her every day. A gun when she went to deal. She was in the audit. She audited people. And she said she didn't know when people were going to get torqued up and attack her. Well, and I thought to myself, well, Susan... You're working for the IRS. What do you expect? No, tax collectors were not beloved people. Now, notice that Jesus said, get up and follow me. Instantly, Matthew got up. He left his profession, a lucrative profession. He probably was making a lot of money, and he, and he gave it up. I'm sure he had to make restitution later to follow Jesus. He got up and followed him. And remember, follow is a technical term to, me, to mean in Jewish terminology. It meant to be my disciple. Get up and learn from me and follow me around and go to my school, basically, and leave your job. So just as the fishermen followed Jesus and left their businesses, so Matthew got up and left his job. Luke, Luke 5.28 says, Matthew, leaving everything behind, got up and began to follow him. He left everything behind. A tax collector, by the way, was so despised that they were not allowed to testify in court. And their shame and opprobrium 
passed even to their family members. I guess the Jews thought it was a sin just to be born of a tax collector. They were hated so badly. So this is who one of Jesus' disciples was. Moving now to Mark chapter 2, verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? First, let's notice that the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it the same way as the King James when those versions say the scribes of the Pharisees, which shows that not all Pharisees were scribes. It was a certain subsection of the Pharisees who were scribes. That's what that of the Pharisees means. These were the teachers of the law. They saw that he was eating with sinners. These were the particular teachers of the law who were also Pharisees and were so hot for keeping all their rabbinic legalistic traditions. They saw that he was eating, Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now, tax collectors, that would be Matthew, who had invited a bunch of friends to his feast. And it was a feast, by the way. I think it says in Luke, a feast, a big, big, big meal, big party. And they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we all, I've already said why tax collectors, were, tax collectors were looked down so much, looked down upon in such a great manner. Sinners could just be referring to the fact that tax collectors were sinners. But it was probably the Jewish technical term for those who do not keep the rabbinic pharisaical law. For example, you could have a Gentile who helped little old ladies across the street and gave money to the poor and so forth but who didn't wash their hands before supper and therefore did not keep the rabbinic law and therefore he was a sinner, although in normal parlance we wouldn't call them a sinner. So he's probably talking about a sinner in the sense of these tax collectors are outside the rabbinic law and Jesus is supposed to be a big rabbinic teacher of the law. Why is he breaking the law of the Pharisees, the law of the traditions of the elders, and eating with sinners? Now notice here that... The scribes of the Pharisees did not ask Jesus directly why he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. They rather asked his disciples. Why? Because they were afraid of him. They knew this man had power and he had authority and he was popular. The people loved him, so they went to his disciples instead. Now, application time. If they hate Jesus, they hate the master, they're going to hate the disciples. And so they're going to come after us. And say, well, why, look what Jesus said. Look, look what Jesus did. So you're going to take the blame for what Jesus did. These Pharisees show how religious people can be the most proud and cruel people on earth. They had man-made moral law in their heads, but they had no love for God or man in their hearts. So we move now to our last verse in this audio, Mark 2, verse 17, in order to see how Jesus answered this charge. Actually, he heard it. He overheard it, Mark 2:17. When Jesus heard this, I say he overheard it. Either he overheard it or the disciples told him. Probably overheard it. When Jesus heard this, he told them, Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now here Jesus doesn't deny the fact that the tax collectors were sinners. He didn't say that tax collecting was in itself, in and of itself, a bad thing. But I'm sure he was acknowledging the fact that it was done in a sinful manner collecting things uh, through extortion. Of course, he didn't think paying taxes was a sin. He had said, render unto Caesar, which is Caesar's. So that wasn't his point. He admitted they were sinners. Now, if he was using the Jewish terminology of sinners, that this is a guy who's outside the Jewish rabbinic law, 
uh, and the term righteous in the same sense as, a, as somebody who's keeping the law, not the way we use righteous as somebody that's just and holy, but somebody who's just keeping the law, washing his hands at the proper time and not throwing an apricot pit over the side of the bed on Saturday. Uh, either way that he's using the terminology, and he's probably using the terminology in the sense in the ways the in the ways that the Pharisees use the term, in the way that the Pharisees use the term. And he's saying, look, I didn't come to call you righteous, self-righteous Pharisees who are keeping every little jot and tittle of the law. I came to call people who are not keeping all that uh, stuff of the law, all the minutiae of the law. I'm coming to call people like Matthew, the tax collector. And, of course, he proved it because Matthew not only followed Jesus, he ended up writing one of the four major gospels that is read by a billion people 2,000 years later. All right, I've finished the first 17 verses of Mark chapter 2, the two incidents, the healing of the paralytic down through the roof and the calling of Matthew, the son of Levi, Alphaeus, the son of Levi, Matthew, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, Matthew as a disciple. And so now we will say Saranara for this audio. I hope you enjoyed it. The next time we'll start with verse 17 in Mark chapter 2.